Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Maxine Beda to the show. Maxine Beda is the founder and director of the New Standard Institute, a research and action think tank using data to drive accountability in the fashion industry. Prior to NSI, Maxine co-founded and was the CEO of Zadie, a fashion brand and lifestyle destination creating a transparent and sustainable future for the apparel industry. For its work in sustainability, Zadie was named one of the world's most innovative companies in retail by Fast Company. Beda has been recognized by Oprah in her Super Soul 100 for leaders elevating humanity and serves as an ambassador for Rainforest Alliance. Maxine, how are you doing today? I am doing okay. We're in this COVID world and I can say it's, it's, <laughs> we're surviving. <laughs> <laughs> and where exactly in the COVID world are you? Uh, I am based in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And how's the weather up there today? You know what? Um, it has been a very mild winter, which doesn't say great things about global warming, but has been um, a gift for at least being outdoors with other people. You're right. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yes. So Maxine, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um. I used to be a ballroom dancer. That seems to be something a bit out of the ordinary. Um, it's my my path to what I'm doing now has been long and winding, and uh, yes, it included a stop as a ballroom dancer. <laughs> what kind of dance? Um, well, ballroom dancing. I did the standard dances: so waltz, tango, foxtrot, Viennese waltz, and quickstep. Do you have a favorite? It really depended, um, and still does, I suppose, um, on my mood. So if I was, I generally liked the foxtrot, but if I was feeling a bit feisty, then um, the tango was good too. <laughs> you know that scene from Scent of a Woman? I don't know. Is that bad? <laughs> no, there's a wonderful scene with Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman. There's a great tango scene from that movie. Oh, yes. I can visualize it now. Yes. I think that's the, um, <laughs> The, the the standard um, tango is a, a bit different than the Argentine tango, but yes, it's very, there's got a lot of um, romance and excitement in that dance. <laughs> very emotional. Yes. So you mentioned global warming. Can you give the audience an overview of the new Standard Institute and your role at the organization? Sure. So the new Standard Institute is a think and do tank that is uh focused on moving industry, focusing specifically on the fashion industry um, to hold it accountable um, with regard to 
the industry's environmental and social impact. So what we do um, is at the moment, sustainability, especially in the fashion industry, is a very vague, wishy-washy term that has come to mean just about anything and nothing. Um, And so what the New Standard Institute does is bring together the existing data that we have available um, on what the actual impacts of the industry are to kind of serve as a clearinghouse of information for others, whether it be organizations or media um, or brands themselves, to know what the um, industry's impact is and to use that data then to drive um, systems change within the fashion industry. I love the think and do tank. (laughs) How do you collect the data? So um, basically what we have done is we have um, looked through first starting with peer-reviewed journals. Um, And what is interesting about fashion is that it um, encompasses so many kind of what are traditionally siloed topics. So whether it's um, climate change or agriculture issues or water issues, which would include things like microplastic pollution, but also um, uh, chemistry and um, chemical impact, um, labor issues as well. Um, And so we've kind of um, done a deep dive across all of these different um, impact area categories and examined what um, data is available in the literature um, and then what is available from um, other organizations in the space. And then finally, we've actually gone out and traveled to the supply chain so that we have a network of whether it's uh, farmers or uh, mill executives uh, mill workers, garment workers, um, garment executives, and brands themselves. So we have a full network and understanding of what is happening, both from an kind of academic point of view, but also from um, real world all the, on the ground as well. So you mentioned microplastic. Can you tell us what's the relationship between fashion and microplastics? Yes. So first of all, just to kind of start out in thinking about microplastics, Um, We have to think about the macroplastics, because I think when people uh, consider plastic pollution, they imagine the things that they can see. They think about that water bottle bobbing up and down in the water or the the garbage patch. Um, But the majority of the plastic pollution that is out there is actually these microplastics, these things that you uh, cannot see. Um, except for under a microscope. And within the microplastic pollution, textiles is actually 34.8% of all uh, microplastics. So it's a huge driver of um, plastic pollution and microplastic pollution in particular. And that is because there has been an enormous shift in the past 20 years away from natural fibers to synthetic fibers, which are plastic-based. So the primary one is polyester. Um, And polyester today, which is again a plastic that is created from a fossil fuel, is in the majority of clothing. Um, And that is when you kind of chart the graph of that, just an astronomical rise um, and a dramatic shift from the world we had before where fibers came from the ground, either a cotton plant or flax um, plant to something that um, is fossil fuel derived, and it's happened within a generation. 
So you mentioned generation. When did the change happen, ballpark, and why did it happen? Well, if you chart the rise um, of polyester and you chart the rise of uh, fast fashion companies like um, H&M, Zara, and these uh, even faster fashion companies that are coming up, you, it matches um, pretty closely. <laughs> um, and the, the uh, polyester is a cheaper um, fiber. So when you are creating a uh, business that is dependent on producing cheap clothes, you use the cheapest fiber. Um, and so it's really been this move to seeing clothing as disposable and these business models of disposability that have aligned very closely with the rise, the dramatic rise of polyester, these plastic-based fibers. You know, you mentioned, I think, H&M. And most recently, my older daughter, she was looking at a website named Sheen. And she was telling me the prices of some of the clothes that are on that website. $7 for a top. How does a company manage to get that produced and sent all the way to America for $7? Yeah. Well, it means they're cutting corners wherever they possibly can. Um, And so that is twofold. You go do your production in a country that has um, the lowest environmental standards, and you go to a country that has the lowest labor standards. Um, And the fashion industry is, I think, an interesting one to study because, at least on the, the cut and sew side, the way we produce clothing hasn't changed in uh, what what we've made it out of has changed, but how we um, produce our clothing hasn't changed in the past about 100 years. Um, it's still produced primarily by women sitting at sewing machines. And so it's a uh, those those businesses are pretty easy to set up because it only requires um you know a, a sewing machine which is not expensive and so what the fashion industry has done has has started this race to the bottom um that pit countries um against one another of who can have the lowest standards um and this is how you get a top that costs $5 or $7 is that um, you are using the very cheapest material. You are not implementing um, environmental regulations. So uh, chemicals are you know, being used and not being filtered out and entering the water supply. Um, and you are certainly um, not paying your workers anywhere close to a living wage. You know, there's a lot of talk in the environmental movement about externalities. And I feel like as you were talking, I'm just thinking of the pollution you mentioned or the low wages, the other externalities that people and the planet is being forced to bear. And again, we can't see it, you know, we're on the consuming end, but maybe it's a more philosophical question, but, you know, how do we turn this back? How do we stop this? And and obviously education is one, one of the pathways to do so, but if you had the power to do so, how would you prevent this or stop this or slow it down from happening? Well, I think it's it's not it's beyond a philosophical conversation. Um, it's a regulatory conversation. Um, you know, we create the rules in you know in which these businesses operate, and we can change them. Um, and so we can insist that uh, companies that are importing product into the United States um, and having access to our markets that they are produced in certain ways. In fact, we already have laws on the books for things like um, products that are produced with uh, modern day slavery. So technically, it's illegal to import a product produced by 
uh, modern day slavery. It's just unfortunate that there's not a lot of resources in that department in the United States um, to ensure that that rule is actually implemented. So it's really a matter of regulatory shifts ultimately. Um, and we have the ability to um, change these regulations. I think as a starting point, however, um, what we can do is demand as a as people who consume these products um, is demand that the brands are actually disclosing what is happening in their supply chain. So disclosing what their environmental and social footprint is and setting public targets for what they are going to do to achieve reductions um, of those impacts. So um, it can, you know, ultimately, I think these are regulatory um, issues where it's just the rules of doing business. Um, but as a starting point, we can really make our voices heard with brands directly by uh, insisting and demanding that they be transparent and disclose what their impacts are and where they're going. So speaking of transparency, can you share with the audience what shadow factories are? Sure. So shadow factories, um, it's basically this concept that, um, so I have to back up a little bit, which is that um, in the early 90s, as kind of globalization was really going, you know, at full speed. Actually, let me back up one more one more step <laughs> to, sure. to talk about why, why we um, have this phenomenon now. Is that in the 1960s in the United States, if you were wearing clothing, you were likely wearing clothing, one would hope, the clothing that one was wearing was likely made in the United States. So something like 95% um, of the clothing that Americans wore were, was American made. And globalization opened the world up and there was many you know, benefits of that. But what happened is the clothing very quickly started getting produced um, in other countries that were uh, cheaper uh, primarily cheaper labor. And, you know, we talked about this kind of race to the bottom, that race kind of started to take off. And so today, um, 98% of clothing that Americans wore are not made in the United States. So a complete reversal from the 1960s. So in this kind of race to the bottom in the 90s, what was uncovered by the media um, were the kind of unsavory, the downsides of this um, globalized supply chain were these sweatshops. So Nike got um, in big trouble for it. And um, there were, you know, 60 minute programs and people uh, began to realize um, this very unsavory um, process behind how we were getting our clothing. Um, and from that, what happened is brands started to develop these codes of conduct for their uh, the factories that they worked with. And basically it was, um, you know, saying you have to have, you know, chemistry management and certain labor standards. And this is what they then started to ask of their um, suppliers. But at the same time, they kept asking for price reductions from their suppliers. So it was asking for high standards, um, but then not uh, really putting their own money where their mouth was. And so now what has happened is we, they, there's an entire kind of auditing regime around ensuring that these um, standards are being implemented, or at least providing cover for the brands that they, they are attempting to implement. Um, and to skirt around this auditing regime, um, factories um, have 
used what is called shadow factories, um, which are not audited facilities most often, which then have, you know, lower standards. And you can't find good numbers around, you know, how many shadow factories there are because the whole reason they exist um, is because they are meant to not be seen. But I think it's important to note, it is so often, you know, the brands will say like, oh, our suppliers are not, they are breaking the rules. Uh, But it is important to note the price pressure um, and the very small margins that the factories are already operating under um, and how those two things, if you want to keep reducing your prices that you're giving to factories, eventually they're going to have to break rules. So that's so, a long <laughs> no, factory. I, I, I appreciate you sharing that and, and the history too. So if you were to, let's say, suggest or recommend people become more thoughtful regarding their consumption habits, what would you suggest from a step-by-step process or something that you could say to a person, you know, here, try this instead? Well, I think um, in order to answer that question, I think I would answer it in two ways. One is I would spend some time in my closet actually looking at the tags. What are things actually made out of getting a better understanding of what one actually really likes? Uh, Because I think, you know, I've spoken to a lot of women in particular, but men too, who actually don't know what they really like in clothing. Um, And that that actually leaves them far more open to kind of these trends or our marketing messages is because they don't actually know what makes them happy and what gives them actual true pleasure. Um, so I think, you know, from a personal standpoint, um, starting there and looking at tags and seeing, well, what actually feels good? You know, there is um, something the statistic is that women wear only about 20% of what's in their closet. Um, so why would you spend money on something that you're never going to actually wear? I mean, what are what are those 20 percent? Uh, I think if we can start from that standpoint and really figure out what we love, we're going to end up enjoying what we buy, first of all, um, and wearing our things more, which is ultimately um, the biggest driver in terms of personal purchasing decisions is actually wearing our garments longer. Um, that, you know, is, is really the, what needs to be the driving point of our own individual purchasing practices. But beyond just individual purchasing practices, uh, I think what's critical uh, for people to know is that they have a voice both in the purchases that they make, but also in what, you know, what they are demanding of brands. And that, you know, getting in the habit of asking a company that they might support you know, what are they doing with their supply chain? Um, Those questions, you know, trickle up to the executives and that's how change begins to happen. Um, And so I think that, you know, individuals who are hearing the impacts of the industry and want to do something, it's both what can they do in their individual purchasing decisions, but also the role that they play in communicating with brands, what they expect of them. And then I would just add the exposure, we have vastly increased our exposure to um, advertising uh, content. Um, And so a very practical thing, I think about habit formation, a very practical thing to do is whether it's on Instagram or your email is unfollowing or unsubscribing to brands and retailers 
so that you're less exposed um, to these marketing messages all of the time. <laughs> we just rolled through Black Friday and we're coming up on Christmas. So, We're seeing now that um, people are having more conversations about, you know, maybe, especially now because of COVID and being stuck in one's home um, and, and have kind of being forced to live with all of the stuff that one has acquired, um, you know, that we can, we can still, you know, we can gift services. Um, there are so many, you know, other important gifts um, that you can have besides, you know, a pair of slippers that you'll never actually wear. True. So have you done the closet exercise yourself? And if you have, what did you learn? Um, I have done that. That's kind of how I got started is I was, my closet was overflowing and I felt like I was always buying things and yet I never had anything to wear. And I got very frustrated one day. And so I decided to go through my whole closet and, and did that exact exercise. And what I found made me feel much better because I the things that I really loved were natural fibers. They actually feel much better <laughs> than polyester does most of the time. And so I found that I, you know, the things that I tended to wear on repeat would be, you know, a nice, um, especially during COVID, a nice cotton t-shirt, maybe a, a cashmere cardigan, you know, a, a layering piece. And kind of knowing my own lifestyle, um, I could then think about the next purchase if I, you know, if I did make, did, did it actually make sense with my lifestyle or were the, you know, high heels that I was buying I didn't actually end up using them because, like, how often did I actually need, you know, patent leather high heels? Not often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a Marie Kondo moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, Marie Kondo in in that regard is, um, you know, it, she that whole movement is great. I would add one, one additional step, which is actually another um, Japanese concept, um, not by KonMari, which is, um, acknowledging, you know, a regret for the resources used as one gives things away. Because what we we hear when we speak to um, the donation centers is they are just getting inundated from all of this purging that's going on. And purging is okay, but if it's just to refill your closet again um, and keep that cycle going, that actually isn't moving the needle very much. So I think a recognition of the resources that were used as we, you know, limit our things to what sparks joy will be a, an, an important additional step in that KonMari method. <laughs> I agree. So coming back to the Institute for a moment, mm -hmm. who's your customer or your client? Yeah, so it's broad. And we really think about the stakeholders of fashion. And those are um, our audience. So the stakeholders are the citizens. Stakeholders are the media and stakeholders are the brands themselves. And so um, on the New Standard Institute and through our social media channels in particular, which we are at NSI Fashion 2030, should note, that we provide guidance for all of those stakeholders, what one can do as a citizen, what one can do as a brand, um, and what one can, um, how media can responsibly cover this industry. So we really think about the entire fashion system and think about systems change as opposed to kind of just one area. I like that. So changing gears, mm -hmm. 
let's get to the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. You mentioned your experiment with your own closet, but what drove you to get involved? What drove you to start this? What's your driving force? What motivates you? Well, I think if I really am honest with myself, um, I, at an early age, was uh, exposed to a lot of injustice, not on uh, not of mine, um, but uh, my family comes from um, South Africa. And so I saw, I, I was born in the United States, but I, I saw apartheid. And as a young person, I just, I, it, yeah, I couldn't even equate like how that could be a world <laughs> that would exist. Um, and so I, I think if I'm uh, thinking about what has driven me, it's that uh, certainly a sense of of wanting the world world to be a just world, and um, but I think kind of more concretely uh, beyond um, that that broader drive is I I did not start in the fashion industry. I got my start um, working at the United Nations, and I'm a lawyer by training. But what I found is that the work that the UN was focused on in terms of the millennial development goals, which became the sustainable development goals, that they all tied to how our products are made, sold, how much you know people are getting paid, what impact do those products have, um, and where do they go when we're done with them. And so um, fashion seemed to me um, a very powerful way in addressing what seem like such separate siloed issues, but in reality, they are all embodied in our clothing. Um, And so that was how I got started in the path, first working, launching a a fashion company that was focused on um, sustainability, and then um, deciding to focus instead on not on producing more garments, but on informing and educating the industry and industry stakeholders. So it's it's from a, a deep seated desire for a, a, a you know a, a just world, um, and then seeing that fashion plays just a massively powerful and underreported role in you know the planet that we live on and its potential for its future. You know, I want to underline that piece about underreported. It's something that we rarely think about. We just take clothing for granted. We don't really put a concern into where it comes from. I've actually had the um, pleasure of being overseas and seeing some of the manufacturing plants, both in India and in Vietnam, and experiencing, you know, you mentioned we talked about shadow factories, but seeing how things are made. And also, um, interestingly enough, seeing how clothing is made in factories and the same clothing might be shipped, for example, to, let's say, a Dillard's here. And the same clothing ends up in the marketplaces in these cities for significantly less amount of money. But um, just the disparities and you know, what we, quote unquote, buy here and pay here versus what the clothing is actually worth in those countries. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's clothing. If you If you think about trade, even from the very beginning, you know, it was the Silk Road, which was about textiles. <laughs> the the trade links that we have globally around the world have all, you know, direct links back to our clothing. I mean, um, if you think about 
India and India's um, cotton. And it was the drive for that cotton um, in India uh, at first that that drove, well, colonialism and drove modern day capitalism. And, and um, you know, I think clothing is so often dismissed as this silly, girly, um, inconsequential um, thing. And even in, you know, the environmental circles, I'll, um, you know, raise, you know, the topic of clothing, which depending on which report you believe has, you know, anywhere between four and 8% of total um, climate impact globally. So it, it, you know, it's this massively um, impactful industry, no, you know, no matter how you cut it, but it's seen as something um, girly and inconsequential. And it certainly is not. <laughs> Absolutely not. So what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned on your journey so far? Oh, there's so many. I think to me is, I think it's important if we really, two things, I guess, if we're really looking to address um, these big environmental and social issues, uh, we have to be driven by the data. And, and that's the only way we're really going to see whether we're making any progress um, because narrative can be so powerful and is so powerful. Stories are so powerful and important, um, but they can distract us um, or they can be mis misleading in that we think um, change is being made um, when it's really, um, you know, just change on the margin. And so I think um, we really need to, to focus in on that data uh, to know, you know, whether we are um, actually moving the needle in a significant way. And then I also think that, you know, and, and I think we're seeing more and more of this, that um, we need to understand the world in systems because it's also, you know, the, the way to, to drive change is to see how these things are all interconnected. Um, and that's been a very powerful lens for me is to kind of, you know, mapping out, um, you know, who are the different stakeholders, you know, within fashion or where are the different, the various impacts um, and bringing all of those things to bear um, is how we can really drive change and then using data, you know, achieve those, um, achieve those meaningful shifts. I love the idea of taking a holistic view. So let's change our view for a moment here. It's 2030, like you mentioned in your handle earlier. What does the future hold? Magic Wand, the new Standard Institute in 2030, what does it look like? Well, um, if we've achieved what we've set out to achieve, um, NSI, and that's why we've put NSI Fashion 2030 as our handle, won't need to exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do think that that is important because I think sometimes organizationally, um, we may get distracted and, um, you know, trying to... Um, perpetuate our own existence. But, um, you know, I'm trying to get myself out of a job <laughs> by 2030. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, what it, what it looks like is we've, we've all taken a look at our system of clothing, which I think does a, a terrific job of helping us understand um, the other areas of environmental and social impact. We understand through our clothing, um, you know, how uh, labor is uh, is driven down globally. 
um, through our clothing. We understand um, agricultural practices. We understand um, ocean pollution um, and environmental um, uh, pollution more broadly. And we understand um, climate impact and kind of what drives it and how it's global too, um, that we can't just have policies in the U.S. to drive down um, our energy use all while just offshoring and outsourcing the climate impact um, to other um, countries. So we've kind of all taken a study of that. We realize it's actually not rocket science to change these things. Um, and it's all a matter of just having our voices be heard um, and getting these policies implemented that we all see that we have a serious stake <laughs> Um, and that being a citizen means something. And we've used that citizenship to to change policy, to have uh, rules that, you know, are truly democratic and work for us. And from that, uh, we've built societies and trade relationships that aren't a race to the bottom, but are a race to the top, um, where we have good jobs that pay a living wage, whether it's in the United States or around the world, that uh, we have oceans that are filled with fish and not plastic, that our air is clean and uh, doesn't cause disease to breathe, um, and that we've addressed our um, climate impact and live in a, th in a thriving planet. And I think that that world is a, a much more joyous world where we have the time um, to connect, which is what, you know, when you read the literature on happiness, the literature does not say that buying stuff makes us happy. The literature um, all says that um, having meaning and connection is the thing that truly makes us happy. Um, so that would be my my vision for 2030. I love the idea of a race to the top. As you were speaking, there's a quote that came to mind, the things you own end up owning you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so last question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom, and you've already peppered the conversation with some, so advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I think if I could say one thing, it's that we all hold so much more power than we think that we have. And whether you are just starting out, you know, if you're um, a student, you know, you can determine, you know, the path that your career um, takes, or if you are working at a company and you feel like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not senior management. I don't have any, I don't have any sway. Asking the questions is what creates the change. And so I think if, yeah, if I would have one thing to say, it's that you have more power, um, power as a citizen, power as um, a worker and, and asking those questions, you know, signing on to petitions um, makes a difference. Um, and we've, you know, if you look at history, which I've had the benefit of being able to study, you can see that any change that has happened in the past has been from, um, you know, a few voices um, speaking up. And so um, I think if we all see the power that we truly have, um, we can make these changes, which are not um, rocket science. It's just a matter of creating that political will. You have power. I think this is a great place to end. But Maxine, before we go, can you speak briefly to the petition you mentioned? Yes. So what we have at uh, New Standard Institute, which you can find at newstandardinstitute.org, is a, um, a petition that 
um, anyone can sign on and we would love and encourage that. Um, and it's basically to um, demand that the largest uh, fashion companies that have the largest environmental and social footprint um, do something that is pretty straightforward. Um, it's uh, doing an, a social and environmental accounting of their impact to actually publish that impact, um, disclose that impact, and to disclose the targets that the companies have set for themselves of how they are going to reduce that impact and what they are doing um, right now to achieve those targets. What we have found is that um, because there has been growing concern from citizens, from all of us, brands have uh, come forward and have set targets for things like 2030 or 2050. But what we're finding, um, just like what we found for targets that were set for 2020, that a target in and of itself doesn't mean it's going to be fulfilled magically. Um, and we saw in 2020 that companies um, had set targets for themselves that they never ended up achieving. Um, and so what this uh, petition is, is to have your voice heard with those brands so that they see that um, we care, that um, we don't just want words, that we want um, to see action. Um, and so that is what um, is the petition. And we would um, really love your listeners if they um, care to make an impact to go on to newstandardinstitute.org and sign on. I will put a link to it in the show notes, Maxine. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Likewise. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.